I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. So today's podcast is with a guy that I've been trying to connect with for some time, Nigel Fisher. He just got the Order of Canada, and he is a guy that you really are going to have to listen to carefully. He has an incredible amount of experience in the not-for-profit world, in the UN world. He has been the assistant to the Secretary General for Humanitarian Affairs in Haiti, Syria, Rwanda. The list is kind of endless, actually. And a couple of things he talks about. He talks about why people all over the world want an education for their kids and how they want jobs. That's the great leveler, says Nigel. It's a great interview. He's an incredible guy. You're going to love him. He's coming out in a film not too uh, long from now, and you'll want to hear more about that. Check out my site, davidpecklive.com. Real Changes Incremental is flying off the shelves, folks, so you better get your copy now. We'll talk to you very soon. Well, welcome to Face to Face, and today we have a very special guest with us, uh, Nigel Fisher, formerly um, the uh, UN Humanitarian Coordinator for the Syrian Crisis. Uh, And I believe, um, before we get into it, actually, Nigel, thank you for joining us today. Very welcome. I think I, I think I do need to do an online apology. So just so everyone out there in podcast uh, internet land knows, we've actually done this interview before, or at least a version of it, and uh, it wasn't recording. So one day, you know, my my the way the way I'm going to put this one out there is one day technology is going to be great once they get all this figured out. <laughs> um, anyway, thank thanks again, Nigel. So you just came home from you just came home from Ottawa. Um, yeah. You've been working with the uh, UN for many, many years, Haiti, Rwanda, uh, many, many different places around the world, um, difficult situations. You must be riding a bit of a high coming back from uh, the Order of Canada uh, Award. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, that, that was wonderful. Um, it, it was, I, I was uh, very pleasantly surprised to be recognized uh, to be a, 
an officer of the Order of Canada uh, when I've lived so much of my time overseas. So it's nice when your country acknowledges what you do. And I think it's really a, a tribute to all of the people like me who work in difficult situations. So I feel I share this with a lot of people. Is there a sense? Is there a sense? So, so I, I think I had made reference to this before in conversation to you when I sent you a note. I think you had a few days left at the UN when you were in Syria still, and you know the note said something to the effect of, "I, you know, I won't be responding to your email for the next twenty years." <laughs> so, so you know, of course, laughed out loud. But is so indication that maybe you're retiring, pulling back a little bit. Order of Canada. It kind of sounds like the end almost. Well, but I, I don't get that sense from you. <laughs> Well, the technology, that was purely because there was no nowhere I could, oh, I, I am leaving and will not be returning. Right. I put a return date, so I put one far enough off. Um, it is, I, I think probably it is the end of my career of going uh, overseas long mm. with the UN. I, I don't think it's quite the end of being involved in the humanitarian enterprise. I'm very interested in seeing where it's going. Uh, I have my own views about what we do in the humanitarian world, how it's a change. And so so right now, I've been out almost a month, so it's 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 the pause that refreshes and see what, see what comes next. So right. no, I'm not ready to put on my slippers or sit in my rocking chair just yet. No, that's excellent. Do you smoke a pipe? No. <laughs> no pipe? But you have the slippers, no doubt, yes. Yes, but they, I have uh, not brought them out yet. So... You know, you've said to me in our last interview, in our last conversation, that, you know, uh, from a humanitarian perspective, um, you know, around the world, when you look at all the different uh, troubles, we do a lot, I think was the direct quote. You said, we do a lot, but but we, w- but you weren't convinced that we were asking people um, exactly what they might need in these kind of um, responses, these, these multilateral kind of government-wide, country-wide responses. Is, could you expand on that? Yeah, I can't emphasize enough um, the courage of, of so many humanitarian workers who go to in, into the terrible situations and try and make life better for the people who've been affected. Uh, I mean, it, it is really something that I feel strongly about. It is possible to make a difference even in the most horrific situations. So it's, it's really been an honor for me and a pleasure to work with so many people trying to do this. Mm-hmm. I must say, that said, um, I feel that there is need for perhaps a, a modified or a different approach to, to what we're doing. And I think um, the issue of responding to what people want rather than what we think they need is, is one of the issues. My experience has been in many decades of working in humanitarian action is if you ask refugees or displaced people or people who have been affected by conflict or disaster what they want, there's a pretty consistent response, and it focuses really on two things. They always say, I want an education for my children. Uh, Maybe my future's finished, but I want a future for my kids, and that means education. And I think that's important because a lot of people don't think of education as a first-line humanitarian response. So that's one. Right. Uh, And I must say that getting kids back into school is also a great way of starting to help them recover from the trauma sure. they have witnessed because it, it provides stability, it provides continuity, it provides uh, a caregiver, a teacher who can watch over them. So that's one. The second is when you ask adults what they want, they don't ask you for a tent, shelter, mm. health care, food, uh, blankets. They need all of those things. And sure. I'm not for a moment decrying that they need those. 
and they're very important. What they do want, though, is to work. And they want to work to earn some money. For them, this, this, this is part of the process of restoring a sense of self-worth. If you're working and are paid, then you can decide what to do with what you earn. Um, do you send your kid to school? Do you buy some more food? Do you get more health care? But you, it's, it's, it's empowering you. And, and too often in situations of crisis, people have lost everything. They become very dependent on others for their, li their, li their, their life, um, and they're dependent on handouts. And I think we don't realize how demeaning people mm. see this, and they want to take control of their lives again. So I think we in the humanitarian domain have a lot more to do to try and help people get this sense of self-worth, regain it through work. So at what point at what point does somebody say that this is no longer about keeping somebody alive? Uh, you know, like a, what I would sort of classify as a humanitarian action mm. because people are dying of a Ebola or a yeah. tsunami or whatever the case might be and say, nope, now it's time to hand this off either A, to the, you know, to the development workers or to have hopefully empowered people enough that they can now say, you know what, thanks a lot, guys. We're, we're heading back to our village. We're heading back to, you know, where we came from to, to start over. I think you've hit a really important point. I can't emphasize enough. This is not a linear process. Hmm. Do not move from life-saving through to development and recovery. Everything is happening at the same time. Right. At the same time, you're trying to clear rubble, or you're trying to help people who've been wounded, or you're trying to help them stay alive. You've got to look for ways in which you can help them. Let's say maintain their community. Keep community services going. If, if they can't, it's not only conflict that drives people from their communities, but it's the lack of opportunity, it's the mm, lack of mm -hmm. health services, it's the lack good. of water, sanitation. So we have to think about all these simultaneously. So I think that's, that's again, a very important message for humanitarians. We have to learn to widen our circle, to bring into it those people who are not strictly focused on what we consider to be humanitarian. I would even bring in many countries... Um, um, as I did in Haiti, look to the private sector. There are local companies that, with a bit of help, can provide material that we're importing. It could be right. water, it could be shelter materials, it could be um, family family items. But maybe they, they, their um, factory's been damaged. Maybe they need a little help to recapitalize and start again. So why don't we think about linking up with some of the regional development banks and see if they can set up some kind of fund we need to do that because if I take the case of Haiti, local banks charge 20% for loans. There's no way that somebody with no collateral can get one sure. of the loans. So, yet, so there's a widening circles, but as I say, all these things need to be addressed simultaneously rather than sequentially. Um, I think uh, one very important thing, too, is, is we need to know better the societies in which we're working. How do they work? Mm, um, context. Yeah, who are the potential partners and already think... They need help, what kind of help? But too often, we as humanitarians, in a sense, parachute in, into a crisis. We don't always uh, know very well the situation we're working in, and therefore we do the things we know how to do. But maybe we'd be better equipped if we knew those countries better. Well, Nigel, isn't there a sense, I mean, aren't, I mean, you know, now we're going to get, I suppose, into some philosophical territory or, or psychological, but aren't humans, to some degree, around the world globally, and I think you could speak to this better than most, 
aren't we kind of um, almost set up for black and white, up and down, right and wrong, north and south? And you know, your comment about simultaneity, your comment about everything is happening at the same time. We're not wired, I hate that phrase because it sounds so deterministic, but we don't seem to like subtlety and nuance and complexity. So, yeah, you know, let's, let's either humanitarian, this is development, this is right, this is wrong. And, and I think what I'm hearing from you is, hang on a second here, we gotta, we gotta start, uh, I don't know, embracing this, this, the, the, the complexities of, of, of development, of, of the other, I guess, in a way. Yeah, no, uh, clearly life-saving interventions are absolutely crucial. But to me, you can't waste any time before you ask, but what kind of life? Right. Not just to live, but what kind of life do these people look forward to? Do they want? Can we help them to have? So I, I think we do have to broaden our, our vision. I also feel that, in a sense, what we've been doing in the humanitarian domain, we've been doing for many decades. But right. the world is changing. Where I've just come from, Syria, the Middle East, many countries which have refugees are middle-income countries. They have strong civil society organizations. They have municipalities which function. So we should be working with them to strengthen those institutions and those, those systems. We can't just bring in lock, stock, and barrel uh, everything we have to provide. So I think even our, our approach of we're arriving, we can help fix things, we have to reflect on that. Is, is that almost neo-colonial? Maybe that's right. too strong a word. Is it perhaps too charity-based. These poor people need our help. Right. Again, maybe that's too strong, but we have to reflect. Our world is changing. It's not the same as it was 30 or 40, 50 years ago. We have to change with it in how we respond, but above all, how we help people to help themselves in these crises. Do you think, um, do you think development workers, do you think humanitarian uh, workers and people, you know, at the, I guess at the, the top down and bottom up, you know, so leadership and grassroots, do you think we're listening well you know, when you read what is written, you would think so. Um, Interesting. Okay. When you see the, the, the references to solidarity, to empowerment, you'd think so. But from my experience, um, I would say in the height of the crisis, people, in a sense, revert to what they know. Right. That's providing stuff to survive. Oh, we don't have time to sit down and find out who our partners are. Uh, we don't have time to organize, etc. Now, that's a generalization. Some organizations are, are trying to do that. But I would say, as an enterprise, let's say, humanitarian enterprise is not really configured around, hey, we're here to help others help themselves. It's not to do it ourselves. Kind of almost, well, that kind of comes back to sort of that, that parachuting in. Yeah, and as I say, um, we, we are very, the world is very different where it was a rich north helping a poor south. There's a lot happened right. in the world sure. in the last half century and, less, and, and there are many more capabilities all around the world. There are new dynamics. There, there are the, there's the global south. Uh, countries themselves, when they're helping each other in the south, they, they are much more sensitive to the issue of, sensitive, uh, of, of uh, solidarity. They don't want uh, perhaps the kind of charity they perceive that we so it's, it's thinking through, we need to evolve as the world evolves, and, and crises go on. So you started, you started with, you were president and CEO of UNICEF for, for five years, 2005 to 2010. When, when was UNICEF working with the sort of the school in, school in the box initiative? 
that yeah, that's been I, around I, for quite some time, hasn't it? Yes, I I started with uh, UNICEF in Indochina after the Indochina War, so that's going back a few years. But uh, I, I headed up the mission in Rwanda and the neighboring Great Lakes countries at the end of the genocide in '94, and then stayed there in '95. And it's there we really started the school of the. Book. Oh, is that right? Eh? Okay. Yeah. Well, um, it, because the reason I asked Nigel is because a because it's you know part of your history, but also kind of touches on you know your your what what people need or you know education for our kids and jobs. Yeah. And I'm just wondering what what your thinking is from UNICEF's perspective. I mean, they they've sort of it seems like been a, have been trying to attend to that even within a relief situation. And I just wonder what the the impact of that might be. Yes, well, and, and it's it's very interesting that a couple of major donors came to Rwanda in '94, wanting to provide us money for immediate life-saving food, water, whatever. But after we talked to them and they talked to the Rwandans, they also supported us for education. Hmm. Uh, I arrived in June '94, at the end of the genocide. September was the start of their normal school year. June. And I met the so you were you were on the ground within three right. months of it starting. Yeah, and wow. then um, the, the Minister of Education said. You know, we're supposed to start the school year in, in September, but we have nothing. And there on the spot, we said, we should try and see if we can get kids back into school. And out of that idea came the idea of the school in the box. And the hmm. first school in the box was a metal box with enough materials for two teachers and 80 kids for three wow. months. The theory being that would give thing, the, the, the system enough time to start getting going. So, oh. I mean, see, now they, to me, that's, that. I, I just got a shiver while you were talking about it, because that to me is like sort of the, that's the metaphor for capacity building in a way, yeah. isn't it? It really is. This whole idea, we got a box, it's a framework, it's a structure in it, we've put a certain amount of material and, and uh, currency, I guess, if you will, you know, enough material for two kids, what is, two teachers, 80 kids, three months, now off you go. Yeah. Yeah. And it was uh, light enough for one right. people to carry. Right. That was it's important. so great. Uh, it was full of cloth uh, wall charts so people could hook them up anywhere. And it led to all kinds of interesting issues. One was we didn't know whether all the schools were safe, whether they had uh, live ammunition or unexploded right. ordnance. So it led me to look around to South Africa, to Nigeria, to Ethiopia to see if we could get some deminers in. And in hmm. fact, a demining team came from Ethiopia and made the round of all the schools to check them out. Um, another interesting aspect was we were scouting around in the camps outside Rwanda as well as within for people with the right level of education to be teachers because there were so many teachers who were lost. We started training them, and we also talked about the trauma that kids had suffered hmm. and what they as teachers needed to do to help those kids. And almost at the end of the first class, somebody, one teacher said, a woman, but what about us? Hmm. And she said, I've been raped. I've lost wow. my children. What about our trauma? Right. And I ended up um, bringing, setting up a whole sort of counseling program for teachers to help them deal with their own trauma so they can help kids. Um, so it, it, it just spiraled into a whole range of other, uh, I wouldn't call them ancillary, but essential elements that we hadn't even thought of when we started this. Well, and that, to me, sort of speaks back to this whole idea of listening as well. Clearly, you guys were listening. I mean, your, do your donors were listening. They were paying attention to the people they were speaking to on the ground because they came with one thing in mind. Here, we want to write checks for this, but we're open. It sounds like they were open. They and, were, yeah. Yeah, and they ended up helping to 
Well, it sounds like they had led to a fair amount of, uh, you know, some pretty amazing seeds being planted, relational stuff going on. No, here, it, you know, it, reconciliation. It, was, it was wonderful to yeah. see those kids going back into school. And, and as I say, in every crisis since 94, the school in the box has become a really a standard part of what UNICEF does and back-to-school programs. Uh, when I, I, I uh, left to, to head up the Afghanistan operations after 9-11 in September 2001, we started immediately thinking of back-to-school programs in Afghanistan. And hmm. Under the Taliban, there maybe there'd been 100,000 boys in school, and then we had some hidden home schools for girls, but no more than 10,000. That's 110,000 in total. When the school started in March 2002, 3 million kids went back to school. Wow. 1 million of those were girls. Um, that was about the only time I saw President uh, Karzai cry. That was the opening, yeah. but something wow. very special. Wow, yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. Why do you why do you think these groups? I mean, to me, it's you know, this is something we could talk about for hours. But just why are they so afraid of education? So afraid of empowering? I mean, you you want to build a society. It seems to me you, you have to educate one way or another. Or or is it? Are they are they afraid of a particular kind of education, Nigel? Is I that, think I think. Um, the kind of education you found in the madrasas run by the Taliban in the late 1990s, it was very much rote learning, right. the Quran, and then strict religious memorization and, and education. What we try and do, it's not just about getting kids back into school, is how are they learning and what are they learning? Right. And so it's about questioning. It is about helping kids Good. to inquire. It's about helping kids to work collaboratively. So we always emphasize not only the content, but the process of learning. And I, I think, frankly, it is enabling kids to think critically, ask questions, become independent, uh, think for themselves. I, frankly, I think those are not what those people who want to control minds uh, really want. Yeah. you gotta, you got to paint outside the numbers, right? That's right. That's yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I was with a with an artist uh, friend of mine recently, and he he thinks we've completely screwed our kids up by teaching them how to paint within numbers. He he won't. <laughs> he just he doesn't advocate for it. He's not he's not behind it in any way. So he's much more into this whole idea of you know basically taking a piece of charcoal and scribbling on a on a on a piece of paper and building something out of that instead. Um, what? What are your thoughts on, I mean, just with, you know, this most recent uh, uh, donation from Bill Gates to, to you know, to, to uh, attend to the Ebola crisis in Africa? I mean, you must, you must have some thinking around that. But I, what, what I'd like to ask you about is the, I guess, the, 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 the bigger implications of this. I mean, this isn't about Ebola, really, it seems to me. This is about an infrastructure that in some countries is clearly either not even there, non-existent, or completely in tatters. Yeah, well, uh, one thing I hope it's not is about pulling up the drawbridge to uh, protect ourselves. Right. It seems to be the attitude on the part of some people. It does, That yep. will not keep disease out. So we do have to address it. And obviously, again, uh, we have to look at uh, Ebola and how to treat it. But again, underlying the spread of this disease are the basics that crop up again and again in terms of uh, communicable diseases, waterborne water-related diseases, diseases, lack of clean water, lack of appropriate sanitation, I would say lack of health education, the most important single thing that people can do to protect themselves from disease is wash their hands. Mm. That requires knowledge, it requires soap, and it requires water. So again, we, we, we have to deal with the immediate crisis, but that is not sufficient. We have to go back and look, 
people get clean drinking water? How can we separate the locations where people go to the toilet and get their drinking water? Because quite often people will go to the toilet by a river and then bathe in it, wash their clothes, drink the water. So how do we go through that process of education while we're dealing with the crisis itself? It, obviously, you need insensitive division of labor. You, you need your, your health specialist to be working on treatment, but you need health educators, social workers, you name it, and anybody who's dealing with, with people in their communities to understand how they can help them. A couple of years ago, Denby Samoyo um, wrote the book Dead Aid, and, and in it, I believe I should have actually cracked it off my uh, cracked the spine off my shelf here. Um, she says something to the effect of that uh, humanitarian aid has been an unmitigated disaster in Africa. And here's this Tanzanian woman, economist trained, I believe, under um, uh, Paul Collier, I believe, says, "We've wasted our time. We've wasted our money." pursuing relief and pursuing development in this way. Well, she focuses probably more on development. Do you think that's true, Nigel? I mean, I mean, I, I, I think for me, I'm, I'm currently writing a piece on, on infrastructure in Africa and using Ebola, this, the crisis, as a way to say, hang on, this isn't really what it's about. There's way more going on here than meets the eye. Let's peel back a few layers and say, this is about a whole lot of other things. Yeah. When, when a crisis hits, whether it's a conflict or whether it's... Um a health crisis like Ebola, you need a response. And um, humanitarian actors respond quickly and, and respond effectively. As I've said already, I think change, a lot of changes we can make. But therefore, I would not say it's an unmitigated disaster. But I would say, as I said before, there's a lot that we can do to change. Mm. Humanitarian workers need to be more open to a range of other simultaneous actions that need to go on. And I think... Uh, Development actors need to think ahead in terms of crisis. Uh, what should we be doing in to, to, to help prepare for and, and mitigate the impact of a crisis? Those who are concerned with good governance, the rule of law, I think they have a role to play because so many disasters are either caused by bad governance and exploitation or exacerbated by uh, poor governance, by the lack of rule of law, by inequity. So again, it's it's not a one-size-fits-all. Right. Don't think you can blame humanitarian aid for total failure, but you can say it has to be accompanied by other interventions before, during, and after, and the humanitarians themselves can think out of the box as well. There's a sense, it seems to me, in which... Um so we need to listen to others outside of sort of the humanitarian and the relief and the development communities, but there's also a sense in which we have to listen to each other within the community. Would you not agree? Yes, indeed. Uh, do you mean within the humanitarian community? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. you know, one, like I, I continue to speak about partnership, this idea that, you know, why, why aren't the, why doesn't the World Vision and the UNICEFs and the Oxfams and so on come together and, and, and work on, the beha on behalf of a disease or uh, an issue or uh, a, a sector or a region or something? And I think we're starting to see more and more of that. Certainly a lot more people talking about it. And we've got the humanitarian coalition now here in Canada and so yeah. on. But I still, Nigel, don't get the warm and fuzzies when, when I look out there and say, hang on, we're really still not partnering very well at all, which to me you know, suggests we're not listening to one another. We're not interested really in getting in the same room together. Uh, yeah, I th again, I think that's a bit harsh. I, I okay, think uh, good. there's a great deal of uh, reflection, discussion, analysis amongst the humanitarians. Um, I think there's an issue in we, we, we undertake so many 
lessons learned analyses, but we don't learn the lessons because we're too busy facing the next crisis. Right. I would say many of the right. partners that you mentioned come together, uh, a whole coalition of organizations around children, for example. But at the same time, each of those organizations is, in a sense, competing for profile and for resources. Mm. So that does create some tensions. So that, that partnership exists, but again, it can improve. Uh, and I think it takes uh, more than just saying, well, how can I work with others but still protect my turf, etc. The other thing is what we talked about before. There's a whole region, that, area that needs really to expand in terms of partnership with the people that we've come to assist in developing countries, partnership right. with organizations, even governments and private sector in those organizations. And that requires um, perhaps a little more sophistication, a, a more of a long-term view than we have. But I, I think the humanitarians are united hmm. around a principled approach to response. But as I said, more can be done. More can be done. What do you, how do you feel about, you know, you've talked about the private sector a little bit and <clears throat> this idea of partnership and listening and so on and bridging and... How are you feeling about the DFAD-D and their sort of involvement in, in, in uh, the mining sector, some of the, uh, the, the projects that are going on, Burkina Faso, for instance? Where, where do you sit on some of that from a, you know, uh, an ethical perspective? Do you, do you have an issue with it, or do you actually think it's the way forward? Well, because I've been out of the country for much of the last you know, years, so I haven't followed the debate closely. I think there's a great deal that government can do to work with um, no, the resource industries, the mining, etc., to enable them to be more responsible and mm. socially responsible in the settings mm. in which they're working. And, and there are lots of horror stories of, of course. cases where this doesn't happen. The whole, the whole notion of enabling responsibility is wonderful, that's by right, the way. That's yeah. right. And, and I think that it has to go beyond a few token projects in communities directly affected by, say, mines. It, uh, it's where... Uh, mining companies have to think about the broader social issues, uh, poverty, inequality, and I, I think they have to think, what else should we be doing? Again, to support perhaps organizations on the ground uh, to help themselves, etc. So it's, it's not about direct intervention. Um, on the DFAT-D, I think we're still waiting to see how that whole integration works out. Right, right. Um, as I said, I think there's a place for the private sector. I don't believe in private sector self-regulation. Hmm. I don't think that works. I think experience in Canada recently with tailing ponds, spills, and so on shows that uh, you can't leave the private sector to regulate itself. So that is a role for government, uh, and, and government needs to, I think, acknowledge that role. You had talked to me at some point, I think, when one of the first times we actually connected uh, by phone uh, before you had, had left the UN, and, and um, you might have still actually been in Syria, uh, I, I believe, mm -hmm. and you had, you had talked to me just briefly about this backward step for humanitarian affairs. Mm. Um, I was talking there, not so much about humanitarian affairs, more about humanitarian principles. Principles, good. Yeah. Um, I feel over the last 20 years and more, We've been developing a whole range of um, legal instruments, human rights instruments, humanitarian instruments to guide our work, whether it's protocols on existing conventions, whether it's development of the, the, the uh, Convention on the Rights of the Child and the protocols that they affect kids, whether it's the International Criminal Court, the right to protect, etc. It goes on and on. And I feel we've got to a point where 
perhaps we have enough principles, we have enough instruments, we've got to look at how we apply them. Because I feel that in the Syrian crisis, we have gone backwards, and I see the impunity with which all parties, uh, but especially the Syria regime, because with the preponderance of resources that the regime has, it's barrel bombing, etc., etc., mm. I hold it accountable for most of the killing that has gone on um, in Syria. They have got away with this with impunity. Um, hmm. the, the Security Council has been powerless to act because, again, it seems to me in a crisis where at least one of the major powers has an interest, it can block any real action. Um, I have found that sometimes even humanitarian actors, human, human rights actors, have been too timid in speaking out, perhaps right. for fear of losing a foothold in Syria. But I actually think we've gone backwards, and we have to reflect in these terrible situations, which are highly politicized, how do we reassert basic humanitarian principles? The obligation of the Syrian regime, for example, to allow humanitarian organizations to reach people that the regime can't or won't reach instead of impeding it. Uh, their obligation not to bar barrel bomb at will innocent civilians, that, that, that should not be allowed to go on with impunity. The fact that they have been taking medical supplies off convoys, and have you heard much of a protest? No. Hmm. So I, I feel a bit disappointed that not enough of the humanitarian organizations um, have spoken out strongly. If there's one for me that stands out, it, it is uh, UNRWA, the organization responsible for Palestinian refugees, hmm. which has all, always spoken out strongly uh, about uh, government impeding their, their access to... N the Nigel, how do you get out of bed in the morning... In, in that kind of a situation, how do you maintain any sort of overarching idealistic understanding of what justice is really all about and not just want to bomb people back? Well, I don't think that would resolve much. Neither do I, but you know, it's just, yeah, you know, Rwanda, I, Haiti, I you've been in some pretty crazy situations. I do feel that uh, we should speak out more strongly. Um, and uh, I attended a, um, retreat of the Security Council some months ago, mm -hmm. which was Chatham House rules, etc. Um, but I was a speaker, um, and all the Security Council members were there. And I spoke very strongly about terrorism, and I said, and I want to speak about state terrorism. This mm. is the terrorism of the Syrian regime against this population. A few eyes darted when I said that, but I think we have to speak out more strongly. I do feel that... Uh, we have to, obviously, you can't be foolish if you're across the table with, with, with Syrians when they hold most of the cards, but we can speak out more. We can insist on their imperative. It's not, sovereignty is not a, just about the right of a regime to um, protect its, its, its territory and its land. It is also about their obligation to protect their people. Sure. And this seems to have slipped. Um, the responsibility to protect which started with such hope and fanfare a decade or so ago, uh, it seems to have been buried in, in, uh, in Libya, where the Russians accused the West of using the excuse of responsibility to protect and humanitarian intervention to overthrow Gaddafi. So we're struggling with, with these terrible, terrible wars to reassert uh, not only humanitarianism, but, but some humanitarian principles. So, so can you tell me a little bit about why you've decided to to do this work? You know that why why do you get out of bed in in the morning? What is it that that drives you forward? 
Um, well, it started when I was a student at university. Um, the university was near a, a mining a mining area, and uh, one day a, a, a heap of coal tailings collapsed on a village in Merida School, and, and wow. um, volunteers were asked to go out and help see if right. we could dig out anybody. I, I went there. And, and where? Sorry, sorry, Nigel, where was this? This was in Wales. Oh, okay. I was, I was at university in Wales. I grew up in the UK. And this was a little town called Abavan, and, hmm. uh, where the entire school was buried. And wow. it, it really, I can Horrifying. see it to this day, the, the Krieg lights as we worked at night. And I bet. And were going whenever they found a child, and, and always the child were dead, children were dead. We'd stop, uh, allow the child to be taken away, and then continue. And I felt very strongly, you know, we, we, we need to help people in, in such crises. So when I came up to Canada, um, after, after graduating my master's, my wife and I went on CUSO, and mm. we, we got hooked on the international life. But after some years, I've, I somehow felt there's more we should be doing. And, and it was, the, to me, the appeal of the urgency of crisis, that if you get it right, you can do something very quickly and very necessary for people in need. And I guess that was the appeal to go into a crisis and, and be able, if you can organize things, you can get very quick very quick results, yeah. And even in the midst of mayhem, you can always find something good, something happening, some human quality that you can hold on to. So I get up in the morning because I'm an optimist. To me, in the kind of work I do and humanitarians do, if we were pessimists, we, we would drop out right. you know, early on. So you have to be an optimist and look for the, look for the best. Yeah, I, I, Definitely, I, I, I'm a 10% bottle full person, not a 90%. Right, right. Um, I've often described myself as a hopeful cynic because, mm. you know, I mean, maybe cynic's not the right approach, but maybe a hopeful realist, I suppose, might be a bit yeah. of a better way. Because I, too, I'm, I'm idealistic to the core and, and think this world can be a better place. And there is this thing called justice. And, yeah. and yet you, you don't have to read too much into, on, on, into, into Al Jazeera's website or BBC's website or the Globe and Mail to say, hmm, maybe I'm wrong maybe I got this one wrong, you know? But on the other hand, you can always find things that give you hope. You, sure, you, you absolutely, yeah. Still, you know, the yeah. World Food Program is feeding 4 million people a month. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, in Rwanda, we were able to reunite tens of thousands of children with mm. family members or, or relations. That's great. Um, get them back to school, um, help them recover. So you, you can do things. And, and I think for... A humanitarian work, at least I hold on to certain images which I have fixed in my mind of that first kid that we reunited with his mother in September 94 or, or that family we helped in Syria. And you hold on to those because sure. you need to give you know, this general general work you're doing some human face. Did, and I did, think that's what a lot of people Didn't you tell me that you have a picture of that child in your office? Yeah, I have the picture of that child, but I, what I, I do have is a picture of the, the hands of two children who are mm. holding hands, and each of them has has their identity right. bracelet on on their hands. They, they were two unaccompanied kids where we were trying to trace their right. their, their families, and we we took pictures of all these kids. But I just took a picture of those two hot hands, and I, yeah, I have that in my office. That's amazing. Um, believe it or not, we're, we're we're sort of coming coming to the end of our interview. I, I think I could do a two and a half hour podcast with you without taking a breath, pretty much, Nigel. Well, it's maybe just, we can do Mark two sometime. We I think so. But before we wrap up, I I, I wanna 
Um, I don't want to end on a negative note. I certainly don't want to do that. But um, one of the challenges I find working, doing this, teaching at Humber, uh, young mm-hmm. students trying to raise money, putting on events where you're hoping to plant seeds to, you know, impact and change the way people see the world. I don't know. There just doesn't seem to be that many converts. And I think, you know, it's, a, it's kind of interesting coming off the whole hopeful cynic kind of hopeful realist commentary. But how do we get people to care more. Uh, and I don't think that necessarily has to translate to their checkbook. I don't think, I mean, how do we get people to donate more money, but how do we get people, how do we get folks over here more connected, more involved, more um, uh, concerned about, I suppose, concerned about others, concerned about yeah. their neighbors? Yeah. I think beyond, beyond the theory, beyond um, learning how things work, I, I, I'm a strong believer in stories. So mm. I speak a lot to young people. And I, I speak to overall what we're trying to do, humanity and law, et cetera. But I also give them stories. Uh, I try and explain the situation, whether it's the political dynamic, security dynamic, as well as humanitarian dynamic. I try to explain why I think it's important to help people. And I, I make the point, surely we all want to help others become our partners in aid or, or development or whatever, instead of depending on them. I also try and bring it home to Canada, and I don't think um, many people, many Canadians know that we have a developing country right in our midst, and it's our right. First Nations and sure. Aboriginal people. Sure, sure. When I was with UNICEF, we did a study of uh, Aboriginal child health and then plotted the results against uh, developing countries. And our Aboriginal First Nations people, kids came 67th on a list of wow of developing countries. So far from being the, the, the OECD country we think Canada is. So we could bring it home. And then I think it's important to talk about engagement. As you say, not just money. Why is it important to you uh, to, to get involved? What difference does, you, does it make to you whether uh, your neighbor is, is doing well or not? And, and I think having that discussion, not just appealing to people's emotions give, but also appealing to their, in a sense, their reason, say, look, let's talk about this and, and right. let's yep. treat people as adults and let's, be, let's discuss why this is important. This is not just charity. This is mutual, mutual responsibility. It's, it's benefit. I find that works pretty well with a lot of young people. Yeah, well, it was interesting. We're we're talking about doing a concert, a concert, a conference in 2015 called "When the System Fails," mm-hmm. and I was talking to somebody about it. And he said, "You know what, David? You got to get away from the plenaries. Forget those silly 45-minute talks. Do shorter talks. Give people opportunities to speak." people opportunities to do panel discussions, to ask questions, to get into rooms, to do breakouts. And I just, I don't know, there's something kind of hopeful to me about that and deeply relational as well, yeah. you know, and kind of echoes what you're saying here, you know, give people this opportunity to, to, to connect in a way. And I think yeah. you're right, so right about the storytelling side of things. Well, um, I think, I think um, just besides asking um, why the system fails, you might have a second part is, and how can it succeed? And how can it succeed? Yeah, and I think that's how the conference would kind of end. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Nigel, tell us a little bit about um, um, uh, your. You've got a. I, I believe you edited a publication coming out of Oxford in the near future. Did you not? No. What it was, I wrote the foreword to the um, journal for Force Migration. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, Force Migration Review. Um, and it's just come out uh, a few weeks ago. I think it's, edi- it's edition 47. 
So that's and the. It was a an edition devoted to the Syria crisis. So I I wrote the foreword, uh, and raised a few issues about again about some of the things we talked about about uh, sure. you know, principles, uh, responsibility uh, of regimes to protect their their citizens, uh, what we need to do, education as well as um, life saving. So, so many of the same issues came up. No, that's great, excellent. So that's the Oxford Forced Migration Review, edition forty seven. That's right. I'm not going to let you go without telling me about your uh, budding um, filmmaking career. You've, <laughs> you've got to tell me a little bit about Sean Penn's new film and, and your connection to it. Yes, well, um, as I wonder what to do next, I think I'll stay engaged in especially the issue of humanitarian reform. However, uh, side issue, when, when I was in Haiti, I met Sean Penn and became friends with him. And he came down and started up an organization to help displaced people. And we've stayed in touch over the years. So uh, back in April, he sent me a script uh, of a film he, he has directed called The Last Face and asked me to comment on it because it's about a human rights worker and, mm -hmm. a, and a, an emergency worker in a crisis. And he wanted to, it to be as realistic as possible. So I gave him quite a few comments. Uh, and then a few months ago, um, where well, well, we're now probably in um, early July, July, late June, he wrote me again and said, I've written it apart. Um, it's yours if you want it. <laughs> so, so I get to be the um, the supervisor um, for a human rights worker played by Charlize Theron. So I have a um, amazingly long five minute scene with her. So <laughs> That's I don't think it's going to get me an Oscar yet, but no. it's a fun thing. Well, you never know. So yes. First Oscar for somebody over a certain age. That's right. Whatever. Yeah. Former yeah. UN, you know, humanitarian. Maybe yeah. there's a special award for guys like you. Huh. There you go. So uh, I'm off to Cape Town in the middle of October for 15 days to do a shooting. Oh, that's amazing. That's <laughs> so great. I'm so excited for you. What's the name of the film? Uh, it's, called, it's called The Lost Face. The Lost Face. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's uh, that's pretty pretty darn cool, I have to say. I think that's a nice end on a pretty positive note. Nigel, thanks so much for joining me uh, today. I, I can't believe the, 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 the stories you must have to tell. I mean, I hope, I hope you're thinking about a book. I hope you're thinking about a film, a documentary, something that will help to tell uh, the story of what, you know, what you've been up to for the last, uh, you know, 25, 30 years. I think that would, uh, I think it would be a welcome, uh, a welcome thing for sure. To think how to make it interesting. Yes. Yeah. Well, maybe Sean Penn can help you with that. There you go. Um, let's just uh, wrap it up here. A quote from Stephen Lewis. Um, quote, Nigel is a sublime humanitarian and multilateralist, tough, principled, creative, compassionate, and indomitable. He's served in the hottest of hotspots and never wavered. He does Canada proud. Close quote. I, um, I think the, uh, the Governor General also thinks the same. So, again, congratulations on your, your Order of Canada. Uh, really appreciate you spending some time with us here today, Nigel. Thank you, David. I enjoyed it.